Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Dina Siegelvan is the director of AJC's Arthur and Rochelle Belfer Institute for Latino and Latin American Affairs. She joins us now to fill us in on her recent trip to Buenos Aires to talk about the 1994 AMIA bombing there in the capital of Argentina and to discuss recent developments in the way that Argentina treats the Hezbollah terrorist organization. Dina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sefi, once again. Many of our listeners don't remember the early 90s, but this past week marked the 25th anniversary of a horrible, tragic event in Argentina. Can you tell us about the 1994 bombing of the AMIA Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires? Of course, Sefi. Um, July 18, 1994 was really a day that changed perceptions, uh, not only of Argentinian Jewry and Argentinian society as a whole, but I believe of uh, world Jewry um, and also Latin America in general. Um, on July 14th, a van exploded in front of AMIA, which is AMIA is the Asociación Mutual Israelita Argentina. It is the, let's say, like the Jewish family service of Argentina, the institutional heart of Argentinian Jewry, and resulting in 85 dead and hundreds of wounded. It was uh, the bloodiest and the worst anti-Semitic attack at that moment uh, in the world. And as I said, it really had uh, a terrible effect on the sense of security of Argentinian Jewry and of Argentina as a whole, Argentinian society as a whole. Two years before, in 1992, we have to remember that there was another terrorist attack that took place uh, in the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires. So this, you know, having a second attack two years later undertaken by Iran and Hezbollah was really, uh, you know, it had an incredible effect in Argentina as a whole. And, um, you know, the 25 years later, unfortunately, nobody has been brought to justice. And for 25 years, we have really encountered, you know, all kinds of promises from the governments, from different governments in Argentina to no avail. Well, Dina, you anticipated my next question because whenever something like this happens, one of the first questions that is on everyone's lips is, you know, who did this, who carried this out? You just said very authoritatively that both bombings were carried out by Iran and Hezbollah. But I don't believe that Argentina has ever been quite so definitive. Why is that? Why has no one been brought to justice for these attacks? No, Argentina has been definitive. I mean, in 2006, they already had identified Hezbollah and Iran as those responsible. And in fact, during the Interpol uh, meeting in 2005, they had um, prosecutor, special prosecutor Alberto Nisman, who we can, you know, I'm sure it will come up in later questions, but Alberto Nisman already had uh, been very successful in um, having red alerts um, uh, raised for six individuals, five high government officials of Iran and one Hezbollah um, up. Those red alerts were already in place. And it was a clear charge that, you know, Iran and Hezbollah were responsible for that. So 
they have Iran Hezbollah have, has been they have been identified, but there's very little that can be done by Argentina without the international community putting pressure also on this country. Um, so that has been a huge problem. And uh, last week, uh, fortunately, President Mauricio Macri, uh, the, the incumbent president of Argentina, uh, finally created a registry by decree, by presidential decree, that identifies individuals, uh, terrorist individuals and organizations, um, including Hezbollah. So, you know, this is really one of the concrete uh, step in the right direction by the Argentine government. But we have known about Iran and Hezbollah for many, many years. This is probably a naive question, but why attack Argentina? What beef did Iran have with Argentina? There's all kinds of hypotheses, you know, which, you know, have been put forth. But I think that one of the reasons why it could happen is because they could, because uh, you had, you know, um, a country where security was lax, uh, where uh, corruption existed, and therefore you could uh, enlist uh, local resources and, and people to help you undertake the attack. Uh, because two years before, you already had had a, an attack against Israeli embassy and nothing had been done. And when there's impunity, we know that we're you're setting the groundwork for other attacks to happen. Um, and you had the sixth largest, you have the sixth largest uh, Jewish community in the world, the largest Latin American Jewish community. So if Iran wanted to send the message that, you know, it was the right place to do it. Um, you mentioned Alberto Nisman, who had been the special prosecutor in Argentina um, for for decades uh, working on this until he was shockingly found dead in his apartment um, just a, a couple of years ago. What is the Nisman story? How is it that he had so much success in identifying, um, you know, following back the footprints and yet was stymied in some key ways? And then what happened to him? Yeah. Well, Alberto Nisman, who was a personal friend uh, of AJC, David Harris and I had the chance to meet with him many times in Buenos Aires and in Washington. Um, and in fact, when the Interpol red alerts were established, uh, when he came back from Morocco, uh, we were in Buenos Aires and really we were the first Jewish organization together with our AMIA partners that he met with to let us know what had happened. So there was a very close uh, partnership, relationship. Um, so we really were distraught when we heard the news. Again, there's a lot of theories that are floating there, hypotheses about what happened to him. Uh, now we know that he was murdered. At some point, they said that he committed suicide. But now I think it's very clear that he was murdered. Um, and uh, he uh, was appointed by President Nestor Kirchner, uh, in 2005, the 10th anniversary of the attack, um, to look into what really was um, was left of the evidence. One of the problems was that evidence had been tampered with uh, and contaminated. And he was able to recreate, you know, whatever way he could, um, this evidence and get to the conclusion that Iran and Hezbollah were responsible for, for that. Of course, he got help from the United States. He got help from Israel. He got help from other services, intelligence services. And uh, therefore, he was successful in doing so. Unfortunately, you know, he um, had discovered 
um, that the alleged there was some alleged charges against um, uh, President uh, Christina Kirchner, incumbent uh, President Christina Kirchner. She had signed a memorandum of understanding with Iran, and it's uh, something that was very criticized by AJC and by the international. Jewish community by the families of the victims and many in Argentina because you know it's uh, you cannot invite those who are the victimizers to try to find you know to try to clarify the case um, so it was kind of ridiculous to do so but it was you know the idea was that they were trying to come to some agreement with Iran you know an economic agreement and then you know kind of under uh, undermined investigations. And Nisman was about to declare before Congress when he was found dead. Now, we don't know if that was the reason why he was assassinated. We don't know if there were other reasons why he was assassinated. Everything is speculation. What remains is that, you know, his murder remains a mystery, just as the AMIA case in many respects. And this is a huge stain on Argentina, which is a country of loss, uh, and a country, you know, that believes that it has to clarify these cases. So, Dina, let me see if I have this timeline right. In 1992, Iran and its terror clients blow up a van outside the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires, and I think uh, killing 20-something people. Exactly. In, in 1994, they blow up a van outside the AMIA building, this Jewish community center, this social service center, killing 85 people, wounding 300 people. At some point after 1994, the Argentinian government enters into this agreement with Iran, uh, some kind of an economic support from Iran in exchange for uh, not pursuing the case further. In 2005, Alberto Nisman is appointed nonetheless as a special investigator and does incredible investigative work, traces this conclusively to Iran, gets Interpol red notices placed on six Iranian people who are responsible for the attack, um, continues doggedly pursuing the history here, the facts, um, and then about 10 years after that is murdered on the eve of when he's about to present evidence against the then president of Argentina to the country's legislative body. Um, is that right? That is right. That's I mean, that's exactly that's a it. movie, Dina. Like, that's... That's... That's a movie. That's a movie. And the movie continues, Sefi. The movie continues because, you know, we, we now have, of course, President Macri has been uh, very committed to seeing uh, the, the case move forward. So now he did this decree that I told you about, this registry, and he really wants to stem the activities of Hezbollah, you know, and, and all of its operatives in the region, including the tri-border area, which is this area uh, where Argentina, Brazil and Argentina um, and uh, Paraguay come together. And it's a no man land where there's where Hezbollah is supposed to be doing money laundering activities and where the mastermind of the attack against Amia came from. So President Macri, you know, has has done a lot uh, so far to move the process forward. But to be very honest with you, we believe that the Argentine state in general has been really at fault here. You know, we, we want to be optimistic. We want to be hopeful. 
But at the end of the day, because of what you have described, you know, we are skeptical. We are skeptical. We many times we've heard, you know, that new developments are taking place and things are moving in the right direction. And then we are we are totally uh, frustrated and disappointed. Well, Dina, as you know, at the 2019 AJC Global Forum in Washington, um, Luis Almagro, the Secretary General of the Organization of American States, um, which is you know <laughs> kind of like the EU of of Latin America, although that's yeah. that's that's not exactly the perfect analogy. But um, he announced that the OAS would now be viewing Hezbollah as a terrorist, terrorist group. organization. Um, yeah. You mentioned this very welcome step by President Macri. Um, do we think that other Latin American nations are going to follow suit? I think it was very important that um, last week you also had a ministerial, our second ministerial on counterterrorism, convened by the United States in uh, Buenos Aires. Secretary of State Pompeo was there, um, and he's, uh, there was a ceremony in AMIA where you had many ministers of security and foreign ministers. And of course, we had uh, the president of AMIA and uh, members of Congress that uh, went uh, to Buenos Aires, especially for the occasion. And the message was very clear by the foreign minister of Argentina. Argentina cannot do it on its own. And, and that's the reason why Iran and Hezbollah have prevailed all these years without any punishment. You know, they don't even recognize their culpability. And this has to do with the fact that Latin American countries and the world at large have remained indifferent to a certain extent. And in fact, many of the Iranian government officials that have red alerts against them have traveled around the world. They've been in China, they've been in Russia, they've been in Bolivia, and they have not been extradited. So, you know, if the uh, Latin American community doesn't come together, you know, the, the nations of the Americas don't come together and uh, follow Argentina in what it's doing, you know, there's no hope. There's no hope. The same thing around the world with, with Hezbollah. The only way that we can fight this scourge effectively is by all of us understanding that terrorism doesn't recognize any borders and that we're all vulnerable to its effects and we're all complicit if we don't do anything to stop it. So, you know, we are going to be undertaking, as you can imagine, uh, AJC through our institute, we're going to be undertaking now a very, and we're already in the process of, of doing it, a very firm campaign to convince other countries in the region to follow in Argentina's footsteps. Otherwise, there's no hope. Well, Dina, thank you so much for telling this story. I, for one, hope that this movie will have a satisfying ending. Me too. Thank you so much, Sefi, for the invitation. Ron Campius is the Washington Bureau Chief for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, or JTA. He joins us now to discuss the squad, the president, and recent legislation in the U.S. House of Representatives. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, the Democratic-controlled U.S. House of Representatives voted on three Israel-related things this week. Uh, what were they? Okay, so the first one was a non-binding resolution condemning BDS. And also, and this was very important to the Democratic drafters, upholding the two-state solution. Uh, the second one codified into law, its principal function was to codify into law 
the $38 billion over 10 years that President Obama contracted to give Israel towards the end of his um, term in 2016. The importance of that is just having Congress approves it adds further protection to it. If the current or any future president says, no, no, we can't give this money, they they can't do that. Now Congress has authorized it. And the third thing uh, targets um, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad for further sanctions. I think they're already sanctioned pretty thoroughly, but it adds further sanctions, particularly because of uh, uh, of their targeting civilian areas in Israel with rocket fire. Now, I noticed you referred to the anti-BDS vote as a non-binding resolution, um, but there are critics of the bill, like Rashida Tlaib, the representative from uh, Michigan, for example, who says that she voted against it and others should as well because it was unconstitutional because it curtailed free speech. Is she right to say that? No. I think you know the bill encourages support of previous language that was passed actually under the Obama administration and passed by Obama that reinforces uh, boycotts of boycotters. It's nowhere near that, that. Even that bill, that older bill from, I think, 2015 or 16, is nowhere near as the draconian as some of the bills that uh, she might be referring to that are currently under review. So, uh, no, and, and plus, it's non-binding. Uh, you know, and so there's a whole sort of, you can have a, a philosophical argument about what it means when you pass a non-binding resolution. Are you actually, it is legislation. It does create a kind of dictionary of terms and ideas that Congress uses, but it's non-binding. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't have the power of law. Um, CNN called that vote divisive, but the final vote tally might suggest otherwise, right? Oh, yeah, it was like 17 against and some, even some critics of Israel uh, sat it out, like Justin Amash, the independent from Michigan. He didn't even, he pre-voted president. And so you had 16 uh, Democrats and one Republican voting against and 398 voting for. It really got across the board support. And, and I think it, it sort of goes to show, you know, there's this argument regarding the more, the tougher anti-BDS legislation uh, and the, the most pressing one it the one that has the most support right now is one that would protect states that penalize boycotters. Uh, there's an argument on the Republican side that shows that Democrats support BDS. In fact, Marco Rubio, the senator who pushed it through in the Senate, has outright said that uh, the people who oppose this bill support BDS. And the Democrats counter, no, we're just concerned about free speech implications in terms of penalizing boycotters. We don't might hate the reason they're boycotting, but they have the right to boycott. And I think this kind of, uh, it's a, it's a sort of a win for the Democratic side in that it shows that they would agree with that because they're opposing BDS, but they're also not backing uh, a bill that would impinge on the right to boycott. And there is this kind of language. It's, it's a little weird. It seems out of place, but uh, in the resolution that upholds the right to petition government either for its policies or against its policies. So it, it, that you know, broadly could be understood to simply say, we support the free speech right to boycott. Now, at, at the same time as this bill was uh, was being voted on, there was another bill that was being introduced uh, that was looking for co-sponsors um, that was co-sponsored by Ilhan Omar, by Rashida Tlaib, and by um, the legendary civil rights hero John Lewis that never mentioned Israel, uh, but was interpreted as a pro-BDS bill of sorts because it was a- another resolution, also non-bonding, but sticking up for people's right to uh, to boycott. It kind of stuck in people's craws a little bit because it specifically mentioned the boycott of Nazi Germany um, and of apartheid South Africa, and, and those were seen 
has really offensive analogies to draw to Israel, of course, but but it never mentioned um, Israel. What what are we to make of this resolution, and, and do we think it's going to move forward at all? I don't think it's going to move forward. I don't think it has support. You need the support from the leadership to get something to move forward. I think it's symbolic, but I do think it's an expression uh, of, the, of the two things that you mentioned. I mean, the, the offensive thing, which would be to liken um, BDS to the... Uh, you know, the boycotts of Germany during the Nazi era and the boycotts of apartheid, uh, you know, you'd have to go into the motivations of each of them. And I, I didn't, you know, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar both back BDS. So I think uh, constructively conclude that that's probably why they're there. John Lewis, though, is just, uh, is you know, that's the other side of the, the equation saying, let's not too facilely legislate against boycotts. You're creating this sort of precedent that could get really complicated. And, yeah, and in fact, some of the state boycott laws have been rewritten because they have been applied kind of promiscuously because they were written a little too broadly. And you had state agencies in Texas, you know, refusing to send aid to people who were uh, affected by a hurricane unless in accepting the aid, they signed a document pledging not to boycott Israel. So you know, there is like a, there is a substantive argument on the other side that you have to be very very careful in legislating against boycotts. Mm-hmm. Um, switching gears here, last week President Trump went after Talib Omar, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and Ayanna Presley, saying that they should quote go back to where they came from. The strong implication was that they weren't really Americans, even though three of the four were born here and all four hold U.S. citizenship, not to mention that all four are duly elected members of Congress. Um, Many news outlets um, kind of bent over backwards, uh, as usual, to try to describe these comments. I think the New York Times called them racially infused, uh, which some people on Twitter said sounded like a new kind of tea. Um, but, (laughs) But what did you think of the president's remarks? Oh, I think they were clearly racist. You know, it's okay to call them racist. Yeah, yeah, you know, he has to deal with that. I mean, if you're saying that somebody is unqualified for office because of who their ancestors are, which he's saying at least in three of the four cases, if he directed it purely at Omar, I think it would have been offensive. It would have been difficult for the American polity to get behind somebody who was attacking an immigrant, but you could at least say that she is an immigrant, that she did come from somewhere. Ayanna Presley is, you know, is a descendant of slaves who predate the arrival of Trump's grandfather. He, like a couple of hundred years. So when he says go back, that um, you can't have, there is no other connotation but race when he's talking about, particularly about Diana Presley and uh, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who's Puerto, Puerto Rican, also has years, roots here, hundreds of years, where she played as a you know, second generation. Her parents immigrated from, from the West Bank. It's, so, it's, so again, like if you're saying that you're, uh, you, the, the, the fact of uh, the country that you're descended from somehow impugns you, that defines racism in a way. The president also centered Jews and Israel in his criticism, calling the four anti-Semitic and saying that they needed to, quote, apologize to Israel. Um, And defending the president, Senator Rick Scott of Florida called the Democratic Party anti-Semitic, which led to uh, AJC tweeting, quote, we can't believe we have to say this, but no, the Democratic Party is not anti-Semitic, and some of the Jewish people's greatest champions have been and are Democrats. Politicizing anti-Semitism is exactly the wrong way to fight it, end quote. Um, Why do you think the president is using this moment to stick up for Jews in Israel? (laughs) <laughs> you know, well, first of all, let's give him the benefit of the doubt to a degree. I'm sure he is offended by the, uh, uh, you know, when Ilhan Omar um, 
accuses people who are pro-Israel of being paid for somehow, and which feeds into anti-Semitic tropes. I'm sure that he's, he's got close Jewish advisors, he's got close Jewish family, and, and that uh, probably offends him to a degree. But he's also, you know, I mean, the bigger issue, the more preeminent issue is that he's very vulnerable in race. Uh, you're going to an election in which um, the uh, the Democrats are going to do their best to get out to vote. I, I, you know, this is going to be not an election where you win any kind of center over. This is an election where you get out your base. And uh, he, he actually thanked African-Americans after the last election for not voting in the same numbers they did in 2012 and 2008, which helped him uh, win in that election against Hillary Clinton. And so he doesn't want the Democrats to turn out their base. And the most effective way for them to turn out the base is to point out that he says racist things. Uh, so he said that thing about going home, and he realized how toxic it was, and his advisors realized how toxic it was. So it's like it's a typical jujitsu type of move in politics to try and tar your opponent with the thing that they're using against you. I don't think it works that well in this case. Um, I just think, you know, as a practical matter, it doesn't work that well. When Ilhan Omar said the things that she did, you know, one had to go out and explain to the layman why these tropes were anti-Semitic, because it's not immediately apparent. And Trump just was blatantly racist in his tweets. And it's just, you know, practically, it's much easier for Democrats to show that Trump has said racist things than it is for Republicans to show that the Democratic Party as a whole is anti-Semitic. So I don't think it's going to work. But I, but I do think that that's a, a big part of it. They want to be able to deflect this back onto the Democrats. Longtime listeners of AJC Passport will remember the episode when we had on Adam Serwer from The Atlantic um, to talk about Louis Farrakhan and some of the issues uh, related to the Women's March. Um, This week, he wrote, um, this is a long quote here, he wrote, Omar must be defended, but not because of her views on Israel, gay rights, or progressive taxation. You needn't agree with her on any of those things. In fact, you needn't like her at all, but she must be defended because the nature of the president's attack on her is a threat to all Americans, black or white, Jew or Gentile, whose citizenship, whose belonging might similarly be questioned. If multiracial democracy cannot be defended in America, it will not be defended elsewhere. That all is the Sirwer quote, um, which is certainly beautifully written um, in a certain respect makes a lot of sense. Um, there, there's a fine line to walk, though, between defending Omar on the narrow ground of, you know, no one should be subject to this kind of attack uh, versus rallying around Omar. Omar and all that she stands for. Um, President Trump himself was gloating on Twitter the other day about how Democrats were, you know, it seemed like they were kind of about to push the the squad out of their camp. And now they've circled the wagons around them. Um, Are the Democrats whiffing at a strategic moment, Ron? I mean, yeah, but if you look at the the vote this week, it doesn't look like it because Mm -hmm. they, uh, you know, as a lot of people have pointed out, I think Michael Coppola of the Israel Policy Forum was one and Daniel Shapiro, the former U.S. ambassadors, or was another. The, it looks like the squad really isn't controlling the caucus because three out of four of them voted for this bill, but they were in the minority of sixteen. I mean, that and that gets to the other, you know, the other thing about uh, Trump trying to tar the uh, squad as, uh, as as itself a single entity. If you look at their views and statements on Jews in Israel, it's quite diverse. And Ayanna Presley voted for the anti-VDS resolution. She explained why in a in a lengthy tweet sequence. Um, because she had her critics from the left for doing that, but she just doesn't feel it's the right way to get to two states. And a lot of people would say that. I, I mean, I would look at it this way. You know, the main feature of the Pelosi side of the dispute between the squad and Pelosi was when she just convened people supposedly privately, and it was leaked that she said, shut up <laughs> to the squad, you know, keep this. So I think from her side, 
Um, we'll have to, you know, it's a wait and see thing because if she does take action to distance the Democrats from the squad, it's going to be done without public statements. It'll be done a little more subtly. And we'll, we'll see going forward. I think, you know, one, it's not related to Israel, but it's a, the, the one measure will be how the party goes on impeachment. Nancy Pelosi wants to slow walk impeachment. And it sounds as if she's getting her way right now. And this is where they are unified in this issue. They do lead the, the calls for impeachment sooner rather than later. So if impeachment moves more on the Pelosi's schedule, as it looks like it will right now, then I think she is, uh, you know, they're certainly circling the wagons around the squad in terms of protecting them from attacks from Donald Trump, but they're not deferring to them in every single matter. Well, there's never a dull moment in U.S. politics. Ron, thank you for keeping all of us up to date on the uh, ever-shifting ground down there in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Mariano Rivera, good for the Jews? Okay, here's what's not in dispute. Mariano Rivera, the famed Panamanian relief pitcher who played his entire career for the best team in baseball, the New York Yankees, serving as the rock-steady relief pitcher who closed games for the Yankees dynasty of the 1990s and 2000s, is one of the best pitchers in the history of the game and is the only person in baseball history to have been unanimously elected to the Hall of Fame. Rivera or Mo, as he was known in his playing days, is the all-time leader in games saved. He's a 13-time All-Star and a five-time World Series winner. You probably heard his name this week, even if you're not a baseball fan, as he was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame on Sunday. Congratulations, Mo. Here's what you might not have known. Rivera, who grew up poor in a Panamanian fishing village and is an ordained minister, is also a proud lover of Israel. He has traveled to Israel twice and been quoted as saying, Every time that I go to Israel, it blows my mind. I wanted to see more. I wanted to understand more. I wanted to learn more. The Bible comes to life when you're there. Indeed. Mariano was good for baseball, helping the sport recover from labor strife and flagging fan interest in the mid-90s. He was good for New York as he closed games for one of the most overpowering dynasties in the history of American sports. And with his love of Israel and the Jewish people, he certainly is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.